Well, hello. My name is Angel Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. Welcome back, True Crimers. Last week, we did episode 11, which was part one of the Station Nightclub Fire in West Warwick, Rhode Island. In my work over the last week, it has turned into a Station Nightclub Fire series, and I'll explain. After I interviewed author Scott James about his new book, Trial by Fire, I wanted to talk to some people who had a much closer, real-time experience with the fire, and I was able to do that. On today's show, I will talk to Station Nightclub Fire survivor, Tom Stewart, and he will share his experiences in his own words. In last week's episode, I talked about the new book, Trial by Fire, and some of you are upset, and you have every right to be. Yours has been a very heavy burden to bear for the last 18 years. Loss doesn't get easier. It changes. It gets a little quieter, but it's always there. And if at any time you want to reach out to me to tell me your story, please do. You can send an email, crimeofthetruestkind at gmail.com. I was contacted by family members on another case I covered. I'm very grateful that they reached out to me. I welcome them to share whatever they would like, whenever they would like, if they would like to add additional facts to the story. When we are researching these stories, we have archives to go by, if we can access them. We have whatever news stories were published about them, video news coverage, if there's any. And we have the court documents or the affidavits. We don't always have the stories about these victims from the loved ones. And I welcome that. It's very delicate to call the family of a murdered or missing loved one and ask them to speak with you. It's, it can be done. Much caution should be used when you're talking about an unsolved case. You could jeopardize that investigation. Even years and decades later, you could. That means there's still a perpetrator or perpetrators out there. And there's always somebody who knows something. And we've seen it. We've seen investigations get new attention and lead to more clues and get solved. On today's episode, number 12, the Station Nightclub Fire, West Warwick, Rhode Island, Part 2. The Station Fire was 18 years ago, and it remains an emotionally charged topic as so many lives were affected that night. For 18 years, there has been a great deal of speculation about the events leading up to, on that night, and what came after. And people hold very different beliefs on what happened. Since there was no trial to set the record straight, so to speak, the debate rages on. We know illegal fireworks were used in a very old building that was, for years, a restaurant. The headlining band used pyrotechnics that sent high sparks into a low ceiling that was lined with acoustic foam intended to dampen the sound. The sparklers that were used were much larger versions of what we use on 4th of July, and they flashed 15 feet 
causing very fast-moving flames that ignited that acoustic foam. And reports were that a flashover was seen within one minute of the start of the fire inside the club. Intense black smoke filled the air, prohibiting those inside from seeing where they were and made exiting nearly impossible and completely hindered evacuation that night. The Station Fire remains the deadliest rock concert in U.S. history, and that hits home for a lot of people. Like myself, so many of us go to shows and venues like The Station in West Warwick. It holds some other very unwanted distinctions. It is the fourth deadliest nightclub fire in U.S. history, and the second deadliest in New England, eclipsed only by the Coconut Grove Fire in 1942 that killed 492 people. The Coconut Grove was a restaurant and a supper club because nightclubs didn't officially exist in the city of Boston in 1927 when it was built. It was located on 17 Piedmont Street in downtown Boston in the Park Square, Bay Village, South End area for the locals. It was a disaster of epic proportions. The magnitude of the station fire had overwhelmed the New England hospital specializing in burn care. Shriners Hospital for Children agreed to open their burn unit up for some adult station victims. It's only the second time in its 80-year history. The first time being the September 11th attacks on New York City. The Ocean State had recently voted in a new governor. He was a former corporate executive named Donald Kachiri. And he was only six weeks on the job on the night of February 20th, 2003. Rhode Islanders would soon learn what he was made of. He was about to be put to the test. When he got word of the fire, he was on vacation in Florida with his family. He made it back to Rhode Island as quickly as he could, so he could assess the damage and support the families. His handling of the fire would dictate the success of his governorship. He helped guide the recovery efforts And he acted as the main source of information as the family searched for their loved ones. For all of the people who didn't make it out, each had their own story. Plans for a future they were robbed of. I learned about people like Tracy King, whose giving nature saw him help rescue people out a window. A hero. But he didn't make it out. Gina Russo. She was so badly burned, her family did not expect her to survive. But she did. She has been instrumental in supporting the other station families and a driving force behind the Station Memorial Park in West Warwick. There's Mike the Dr. Gonzalves, the WHJY DJ, who was there hosting the show. He was there subbing for my friend John Laurenti, who did most of the Bud Nights at the station, I learned. The doctor didn't make it out. It was a long and grim process for families to learn the fate of their loved ones. I talk at length with John Laurenti in part three of this series. There's Mike Vargas. He was one of the many fans at the front of the crowd cheering on the band when the fire broke out. He went, as many did, to the main entrance where he fell and was trapped under a throng of terrified people. He spent some time on the floor, trapped on his side in the fetal position with a very small pocket of air to breathe. He didn't know if he would make it out. He was found by a firefighter who was working to move the bodies of those who had died in the entranceway. Bodies of those who were laying on top of Mike. We often hear of places being a close-knit community. Rhode Island is a close-knit community. People spend their lives here. They know each other well. They went to school together. They worked together. They hung out in the same places. 
Rhode Island will be forever connected by this tragedy. And, in a way, New England will too. I wanted to talk to someone who knew what it was like to be inside. Someone who experienced firsthand what happened on that night. Tom Stewart grew up in Rhode Island. He lived there for much of his life. And he was a fan of Great White. He was at the station on the night of February 20th, 2003. Today, he is a stand-up comedian. He is the owner of Funny for Fun South Coast. And he is the host of the podcast My Paranormal Story, available everywhere you listen to podcasts. I spoke to Tom via Zoom. There are some sound drops throughout, and it's slightly wonky. But it was a great conversation about his experience in the station fire. Here is my conversation with Tom Stewart in his own words. You're a native Rhode Islander, mm-hmm. you bastard child of New England. Do we still call it that? Or is that just me? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your hometown. Well, I grew up, I was born and grew up in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, um, you know, right, right outside of Providence, home of the uh, former AAA affiliate for the Boston Red Sox who are now in Worcester. But yeah, I grew up in Pawtucket, but I lived all over Rhode Island. You know, I lived in uh, Providence for a while, Narragansett for a while, Cranston for a while. And, um, you know, uh, going to rock shows when you live uh, near Providence, it's kind of like living near Boston. You go to rock shows all the time. You see all the bands. I've been to easily over 500 concerts in my life, maybe more. And like you, I've worked in radio too. So, um, So you end up at a lot of shows over the years. And um, Great White, who was the band, obviously, from the Station Nightclub Fire, was just one of those bands that, for some reason, during the 80s and 90s, I never ended up seeing them live. I'd seen everyone else, but never Mm -hmm. seen them. I was supposed to a couple of times, but bad things always happened leading up to the shows, and I would miss them. One time it was a flat tire. Another time uh, a person I was with got hurt and we missed the show, things like that. So they were always kind of a bad luck band for me. Wow. And so when that show was coming up at the station nightclub, a few days before the show, I just said to a friend of mine, hey, you want to get a couple tickets and go to this show? I've never seen Great White Live. And at that time, it wasn't even the original band anymore. It was just the lead singer. So that's how it all came about is uh, it was kind of like, a, hey, let's just go do this because it's something to do type of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just trying to get them off my list of bands to see. Right. Had you gone to the station at that all? Was, that was my first and only time ever there because I'd been to every other venue in Providence area. Yeah. But this one, uh, I just had never been to it for some reason. I had plenty of friends who had, but it was my first experience in the building that night. Tell me about the night leading up to the show. Well, I met at a friend's house. He and I were the original ones we were going to go. And um, the day I went to go buy the tickets, he called me up on my phone and said, hey, can you get two more tickets? There's a girl I know who wants to come and she's bringing a friend. I was like, great. You know, so we met at his house and the friend she brought was a guy (laughs) to his disappointment because he Ah. thought double date thing going. So it was kind of a funny situation. But, you know, we had a few drinks at his house and we ended up taking separate cars me and him in my car and her and and the guy she was with in her car and we went up to the show it was um you know obviously it was a cold night because it was february 20th and uh, there had just been a snowstorm like the day or two before that so there was like a foot of snow on the ground 
snowbanks everywhere because of the plowing, nowhere to park, you know? So we ended up having to park a few blocks away and walk through the cold to get to the club. And we probably got there about 9, 30, 10 o'clock, knowing that, you know, Great White would be the last band and we didn't really care about the opening bands. We didn't know who they were. And, um, you know, at first it just seemed like it was going to be a regular night. We walked in, you know, showed our IDs and showed our tickets and that whole jazz. And then, you know, I'm kind of a claustrophobic person. And as soon as I walked in, I could tell that the front area where the stage is was going to be packed because it wasn't like seating or anything. You know how these small rock bars are. Yeah, They'll pack in like sardines. And I'm not a fan of that. So there was a bar way on the other side, almost kind of in a second room. But I said, guys, let's just go hang out here. We can still see the band fine from here and we'll be able to get our drinks quicker. And everybody kind of followed my lead. And that's kind of where we ended up for the night. And then eventually the show started. So you were in this room, give or take. I mean, there's discrepancies about about how many people were in the room Mm -hmm. and you're hanging tight in the back. The band starts and this is where everything goes to hell. Tell me what you remember. Well, I remember I remember it being crowded. But I had certainly been in more crowded situations than that show that night. Mm -hmm. And I've heard totals of over 400 people in there or something. I don't know what the capacity law was, but um, they had moved everything out of the way from what I understand. They used to have pool tables and tables and stuff and everything got moved out of the way so that they could increase capacity that night. Um, But if someone said there was 400 people there, I wouldn't be surprised by that because it was pretty crowded. I kind of stood in the back away from the crowd. I didn't need to be front row for Great White, you know, in 2003. It was okay with that. (laughs) Right. Um, You mentioned HJY before the show, before Great White went on stage. It was kind of in between. It was the last opening band had just finished and Great White would be coming up next. So there was some time in between. And Dr. Metal was at the back bar getting a drink. I actually bought him his beer because him and I have, I wouldn't say we were friends, but we were acquaintances. We would see each other at shows all the time. We'd worked at a lot of different places, knew a lot of the same people. So him and I were actually chatting it up for a bit. And then all of a sudden he said, oh, I gotta I gotta go. I gotta go introduce the band because he was there hosting for the night. And um, he ran off and he went on stage. He you know threw some t-shirts and CDs out to the crowd and everything. Got off stage. Then five minutes later, he came back on stage. He introduced Great White. The lights went down and the band started playing and sparklers, giant sparklers started coming out of the front of the stage. Something I've seen before, but seemed like overkill for such a small bar, you know? Yeah. But if you've ever been near a stage or on a stage, you know that those sparklers, they're not really hot. It's not like you could put your hand in them. It's not like fire. You know, it's like it's like the sparkle you hold on Fourth of July, you know, mm-hmm. except much larger. So I saw those shooting out, you know, no big deal. The band starts playing, the lights turn on and you see the band, you see Jack Russell up there doing his thing. And they start going into their first song, which I think was Desert Moon. And so everything was cool at that brief moment. And that's when I started to see a strange glow coming from above the band and kind of behind the band, kind of behind the drummer. Not a very big stage, but there was this weird glow, like an orange glow, and I wasn't sure what it was. I guess maybe I just thought maybe it's just another special effect they're using or something. I don't know. And obviously this was going on very quickly, but then everyone starts to quickly realize this is something is caught on fire on stage. And at this point, I still haven't panicked because I'm thinking, you know, people are going to run out here with fire extinguishers, put that out, we'll have a good laugh. You know, the band will make jokes about it. Or yeah, whatever. you'll have a great story to tell later. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Right? But as the fire started to get a little bit bigger, 
I can see the drummer now getting away from the wall because it's starting to catch on fire behind him. And I can see people on the stage with like bottles of water trying to flip water oh, at wow. the fire. And the band has stopped playing now. And I can see people now rushing away from the stage. And it's kind of like a push. Like I said, I'm claustrophobic. So that's what actually worried me was the people and not the fire. So I guess still in the back of my mind, I just didn't picture this becoming a big fire. Someone's going to put this out. Sprinkler system's going to kick on or something, maybe. I don't know. But I was more worried about I need to get away from these people because I don't want to get trampled, you know. Mm -hmm. So I did like everyone. My first instinct was to run to the front door and get out the way I came in because my first time in there. So I didn't know where any other doors or entrances were. But as I took a few steps that way, I stopped in my tracks because someone behind me said, no, Tom, this way. And so I stopped and I turned and there was a side door next to us. In the back of my mind, I probably knew that door was there too because the barbacks were bringing bottles and you know barrels out that way to the dumpster all night. And being cold out, we kept feeling that cold. But someone did say, Tom, stop this way. So I turn and realize, oh, there's that door. I'm just going to go out that door until this is all over. Then we can all come back in. So probably another dozen or so people were trying to go out that door with me. And it was kind of like, you know, all of us trying to get out at once. The next thing you know, I was jumping over people into a snowbank outside. And once I got outside, I started realizing this is a little more serious than I thought, because I could see the black smoke coming through the building now, like a tidal wave of black, black, thick black smoke. So once I was outside, I realized, all right, this is a little more serious. Where are my friends? Where is everybody? Mm -hmm. The girl who had come with us and she brought the guy with her, I found them too. They were already across the street. They'd gotten out that door too. They had seen my friend who was with me, my friend Chris. They had already seen him. They said, oh, he got out. We saw him. We don't know where he went though. So, so okay. you have Fair. you have a sense of relief that your your crew's out. Yeah, my friends are out. And um, at this point, I'm thinking, all right. The building's dark now. There's smoke everywhere. People need help. I got to go back somehow and do something. So originally I thought about running to my car to get a flashlight, but we parked so far away. I kind of just erased that idea and said, I'll never have time to go there, come back. It won't make a difference. So I just went back to the door that I got out of and got on my hands and knees and kind of halfway through the door, just started banging on the floors, banging on the, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the, the door, just trying to get people to come to the sound of me, you know, screaming out to them, come this way, come to my voice. I'm thinking people are on their hands and knees. They probably can't see. Another guy's next to me doing the same thing and we're doing it together. And we just keep reaching in until we can feel somebody and we grab them by their shirt, their pants, whatever. We pull them out, throw them into a snowbank. And we did that four or five times, probably maybe more, maybe less. You know, it's all kind of a blur, but eventually I could feel the heat getting closer and closer. And it kind of reminded me of when I used to work in a concession stand that sold pizza back in the day in the hot, hot oven. And, and I said to the guy next to me, we got to get out of here. It's getting too dangerous now. And it turned out to be my friend Chris next to me the whole time. He had gone back to the door to try and help just like I did. We didn't even realize it until after. Once we got away from that door, flames were starting to come through that doorway now. It had spread all across the building by that point. And this, you're talking minutes now. This is all happening, you know. You saved a couple lives that night, Tom. Well, I mean, we helped some people get out. Hopefully that saved lives. Yeah. I mean, maybe they would have still got out. I mean, I don't like to to say I saved lives and everybody did. Everybody was doing something around there. You know, there were people throwing people through glass windows on the other side. Wow. I had at one point gone around the building trying to just see who I could help that's injured. 
but nobody you would meet that was hurt or looked like they needed help would let you help them. Everybody was concerned about, no, I got to find my friend. I can't, no, leave me alone. Don't mm-hmm. touch me. I got to mm-hmm. go find my friend. Right. Everyone was concerned about other people. And you could see, I saw the front door of all the people that were just stacked up on top mm-hmm. of each other. All those people, hundreds of people all at once trying to go out that front door and they just fell on top of each other like dominoes. And I could see some people trying to pull them out, you know, the people on the bottom and you just couldn't, there was too much weight. And, you know, it was all just surreal seeing people with leather jackets that were melted Mm. onto their bodies and people, you could just tell their hair had gotten caught in some fire and just the smell of it. Eventually, you know, fire trucks started pulling up one after another, ambulances, police cars. And at that point, all we could do was stand aside and get out of the way. You know, I kept trying to interrupt paramedics. Let me help carry your bags. Can I can I move the stretcher with you or something like it was an amazing scene of just. Ambulances lined up down the road, all waiting to take a couple people in and then take off. And then the next one would pull up and they put people in there and take off. It was just like an assembly line of, of people who needed help. And somehow I just felt like I, it was like a helpless feeling because I couldn't help people, but I felt like I needed to. And there was nothing I could do to help because I'm just going to get in the way. You know, right, right. I wasn't a paramedic. How long did you stay at the station site that night? I think we stayed there for like a couple hours. I can just remember standing around in the cold, just watching everything happening and just thinking, what do we do? Where do we go? Do we have to tell someone? Will someone come talk to us? We weren't hurt, so we didn't need assistance. But it was just, you know, it just felt weird to just up and leave, you know? So we were there for a while until finally some police came around and said, everybody can go home. You can leave. There's nothing left to see. You know, at this point, they put the fire out and most of the injured had already been removed. And then the the... The club, what you could see inside the club, most of it had been knocked down by now, but there were tarps just covering sections, and you just knew those tarps were covering people. You know? And um, that was an image that never will never leave my brain, is that those blue tarps on top of people, mm-hmm. you know, just piles of people. How have you been able to process this over the years? When you talk about it like this, does it does it bring up those feelings that stay with you for a while? How do you deal with it? I mean, I I did some, um, you know, I went and talked to some professionals early on the first couple of years, and that helped a lot. But yeah, uh, talking about it openly with people has actually been very helpful along the way, especially those first few years. Everybody you meet was curious about it. Everybody you meet somehow had a relation to the fire. They knew someone who was there or they were supposed to go. And then when they actually meet someone who was there, they have a million questions. And uh, I've always been happy to, you know, answer those questions as best as I can, Mm -hmm. you know. And yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I mean, it's definitely led to some PTSD. Yeah. February, I have a real uneasy feeling. Uh, My depression will get a little bit worse. My anxiety will get a little worse Mm -hmm. in February, you know, because my body just knows, I guess. You know, I don't have any bad dreams. I don't like... You know, I don't have any fears or anything crippling because of it. It's kind of weird that it was 18 years ago already. How did you deal with going into other events and shows after that? Did it take you some time to feel relatively? I don't know if we ever feel comfortable after something like that happens. I'm sure I went to some some bigger shows, you know, like, you know, like arena shows. But I can't remember how long it was before I went to another bar show like that. I'm sure I did because I can remember going to some other shows, but I can't remember how long it was. But 
even regardless concerts or wherever I go now, because you know now I'm a stand-up comedian, so I do a lot of shows in comedy clubs that remind me of places like that. And it's just my instinct now to look for where all the exits are. As soon as I walk into a building, I'm like, all right, there's an exit over there. There's an exit over there. Something goes down. I know which way to go. It's kind of become an instinct. Yeah. So much changed from what happened that night at the station. Everything was reevaluated. One of the biggest issues of the station fire is that that building was grandfathered and didn't have sprinklers. Yeah. From what I understand, it didn't. Yeah. And a lot of things changed. They changed a lot of laws about that. I was actually fortunate enough that I was interviewed and asked what things would have made it easier for people to get out of there that night. There were a couple of local club owners back in the day who asked me to consult with them about how they could make their clubs safer. And so I recommended some things that I believe have been implemented in Rhode Island, where I've said um, to put glow-in-the-dark exit signs at the bottom of doors and not Mm -hmm. the top because the smoke if it's thick enough, is going to block that sign out. If it's at the bottom, you know, people might see it better because my friend Chris, who got out, he got out on his hands and knees. He got out after me. He got out by crawling on his hands and knees, and he had to feel his way through the room to find that door. But if there had been something at the bottom of that door, he might have been able to see it. So that was kind of a recommendation. And just making sure that you know employees know where fire extinguishers are and how to use them. It was surprising that You know, all the years I've worked in all different jobs, I've never been told or trained where a fire extinguisher is in a building or how to use it. And that feels like something that people should know. For sure. If you're responsible for a group of people, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to a club or a bar, you know, your floor hosts, your bartenders, any employees should all be trained on where the equipment is and where to, you know, how to use it in case something does happen. And I know that a lot of facilities in Rhode Island now Um, make announcements about where the exits are. The other idea I had was put some some maps of the building, of the layout of the building you're in, uh, on the bars or on the walls in the bathrooms so that people might see it and subconsciously know where the exit is. Mm -hmm. Because I had no idea where to go. And everyone's first instinct is to go the way you came. And that's what cost a lot of people's lives because Mm -hmm. most people went to that front door and if they'd have gone to other exits more people might have gotten out. I know it was pure chaos and it happened very quickly. At any point, did you see any, was there any security there trying to assist people in various directions? I saw a couple of guys in security shirts who were at the front door trying to get people unwedged from that front door pile up. And, you know, you know, chaotic, like you said, they were running around. I know one guy had come over to the door where we were, And, you know, he was trying to help, but there was only so much room. And then, you know, it was just it was literally just screaming and glass breaking and just complete chaos is the best word for it. Yeah. It sounds like it just moved too fast for anybody to really be prepared for what was to come. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently it was just an old, old wooden building. From what I understand, it was an old Italian restaurant at one time. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just it was just a place that was, you know, going to go up fast no matter how a fire started. Mm -hmm. They created the perfect situation for a fire to start, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you after for the impact of it to really to really hit you, for you to really feel the impact of what you had just experienced? I had a few breakdowns. 
um, over time, over the next couple of years after it, I had breakdowns here and there that I could probably attribute back to that, you know, but I mean, I think it was right after the fire, it was all just surreal that night. And the next day I was getting phone call after phone call from people who knew that I would probably be at that show because yeah. I'm at most shows like that. So a lot of, I mean, I had people calling from Washington, California, Arizona, checking in on me to see if I was there or not, <laughs> you know, plus also plenty of local people too. So I, I fielded calls for two days Huh. And then lawyers were checking in for a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I found out that there were a few people that I didn't know were at the show that I'm friends with had were in the show and were in hospitals. And I was worried about them and checking in on them now. And so a lot of my instinct was to start worrying about other people and not worry about myself. So I think I kind of bottled up whatever I needed to go through yeah. so that I could try and help others for a while. 30 days after the fire, I remember I went to the site for the first time. And at that point, it was, you know, all the, the remains of the building were still there, but it was a big chain link fence going around all of it, kind of like an evidence scene. Mm-hmm. But the whole chain link fence was just covered in trinkets and tributes. And it was like a, a huge makeshift memorial that everybody who was coming around were hanging things up there for their mm-hmm. loved ones that, that were lost in there. So that was a tough day, you know, seeing all of that and kind of reliving it. And I grabbed a couple of pieces of wood from the building as like souvenirs, I guess. I don't know. I don't know why I call it a souvenir. It's not really a, something you want to remember, but I felt like I needed a piece of it. Yeah. So I actually still have those somewhere in a box somewhere. And then there were other times where, you know, sometimes I would just be at a bar, you know, when it's closing and talking to the bartender friends with and then all of a sudden just start breaking down about it. You know, there was there's a few times I've broken down. There have been times where I've been in job meetings and work got so stressful and I just break down, mm-hmm. you know. So it took me a few years to kind of get over that. You know, I think part of me was a little too stubborn to deal with it. And I just kind of, you know, did it the Irish way. I just kept it in. You know? Right. Did you meet up with any of the other survivors? Have there have there been times where you've gotten together Mm-hmm. To support each other, what was that I, like? Actually, I got I got as involved as I could with uh, the station, a nightclub fire, fire foundation mm-hmm. at the time, which was a bunch of survivors and family members got together to try and raise money for people who needed it uh, because there wasn't any federal money coming in. You know, there was some charities helping out, but for the most part, we were kind of left on our own. So I got involved with a bunch of people who were organizing things, and I helped organize and promote shows. We did concerts and benefits and things to raise money. And luckily at the time I was working in radio too. So I was able to pull strings to help get a lot of exposure on radio. And, uh, and I've made some lifelong friends from these people who I probably never would have known if it hadn't been us coming together because of that. I'm still friends with quite a few of them. And some of them have even moved away, but we've stayed in touch, mm-hmm. you know? So we, we kind of became a family because of that, you know? And hopefully we helped a lot of people. I'm, I'm pretty sure we did. You know, some of the kids whose parents were in this fire are now adults and probably yeah. have kids. You know, we did the best we could. I actually was able to, I believe it was the two-year anniversary of the, sh- of the fire. I was working at a small rock station in Massachusetts. And we were doing a fundraiser that day to raise money for the station family fund. I was able to pull off getting an interview with Jack Russell on the radio. I was going to ask you what your feelings were for the band or for for Jack Russell, since he 
is essentially the band. Yeah. I had a hard time applying blame to any one person for the whole thing. I've always kind of felt that a lot of people made mistakes, but if you took one of them out of the equation, the whole thing doesn't happen. Right. You know, so I definitely feel like the owners, Jack Russell, the band, the person shooting off the pyrotechnics, I think everybody played a part in it. When we were doing this fundraiser, I wasn't on air for it, but I booked the interview with with the person on on the air at the time. It was it was funny because Jack Russell found out that I had been a survivor from the fire, so he chose to do this interview where he had turned down so many others and big names like Today Show and Oprah and things like that. And even going against the will of his lawyer, he decided to do the interview with us. And he was breaking down. I mean, he was very, very sincere and human and was just heartbroken over the whole thing. And this was two years later. People forgot that, you know, Jack Russell lost friends in that thing too, in that fire. You know, I mean, he lost a bandmate who died in the fire and he lost other people who were friends. And, you know, at this point, these people, these 400 people who come to these shows that he does, that that was his his living now. You know what I mean? So I kind of felt bad for him in a way. But in a way, I also kind of had to blame him, too. Yeah. And I was able to talk to him off air about it. And he couldn't have apologized more times to me. And he just felt sick about the whole thing. And I really felt like he was as much of a victim as he was to blame. And, and I feel like he's he's paid a hard price for, for what he went through that night. Because of him agreeing to do the interview, obviously a lot more people tuned in and that led to a lot more people donating money and helping people. So I thought that was interesting. And then almost immediately the next morning, I got a phone call from the state attorney general saying they want a copy of that interview from the oh, radio station. For evidence. Saying they'll, yeah, saying they will subpoena for it if they have to. And wow. and I said, there's no need. I was like, I'll give it to you voluntarily because, you know, I never had any agreement with him that I wouldn't release it. I mean, he right. publicly agreed to it. So, That's right. you know, obviously they all settled out of court, so it was never needed. But all that lawsuit stuff kind of got to be what it was all about after a couple of years. There were an, an enormous amount of people sued. Yes. Well over 115 million, I read. I'm, I'm reading this book, by the way. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's called Trial by Fire. Scott I've, James wrote I've it. I've seen promos for it. I haven't read it. I would recommend it if you feel like you're in the right space for it. Mm-hmm. I actually interviewed Scott, the author, who's, who's from New England, by the way, and worked in mm-hmm. Providence for a long time. He was, uh, from what I understand, he was a news guy, and I think he was friends with or worked with one of the owners of the station nightclub. He had prior to the the fire, years Mm -hmm. years prior, they worked at the same TV news station. I wouldn't say that they were friends. He didn't indicate that they were friendly, just that they had worked together. It's a really interesting story. He yeah. he investigated the fire for about 10 years before he wrote the book. Yeah, I, I've actually been planning on checking it out, but it has, just hasn't been a priority. Yeah, I'm not worried about reliving it as much as me saying, I, I just hope none of it in there is opinion-based is basically what I'm getting at. Him portraying a story to make someone else look better in some light than another, you know, um, that would probably upset me. But I mean, as far as the legal stuff goes... I had lawyers asking me, you know, did you see this? What happened here? How do you know this? And and for the most part, I couldn't give them any straight information because I didn't know. You know, like they were always asking, did you see a fire extinguisher? And I said, well, no, I didn't. But that doesn't mean there wasn't any. It just means that I didn't see any, you know, mm-hmm. not that I remember. You know, and it was always things like that. It was like lawyers trying to get me to pick a side 
and I never wanted to get involved in that stuff. And then when it came to settlements, um, I passed on any kind of, I had a right to settlement money for some reason. And I was like, that's ridiculous. I wasn't hurt. I know I got out of there with my life. My friends who were with me all got out with their lives. None of us got hurt. Emotional damage, I guess I should have, I could have collected money, but I said, no, I said, there are people who need that money much more than me. What little I would get, keep it in there for them. So, you know, millions and millions of dollars of class action lawsuits went through, you know, and it, it was a lot of people who were sued besides the band and the owners Radio stations got sued. Mm-hmm. Sponsors got sued. I think mm-hmm. Budweiser got sued. Mm-hmm. I know that mm-hmm. company that makes the foam that was on the walls, That's the right. soundproofing. So many people got sued and pretty much everyone settled out of court. Even with all that money, though, I'm quite sure everybody would rather have their loved ones back. You know? Absolutely. Do you feel like people paid the price? Do you feel like there was justice in all of this? It's it's weird because... It's hard to make an opinion for a couple reasons. One, like I said, I feel like a lot of people made mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there were some people who didn't get as much blame as others when it should have been passed around more equally. But there also wasn't any court cases. So there wasn't any evidence or testimonies to, to base anything on, you know. So instead of just, you know, pl- applying it out of spite or something, I've just kind of just said, well, it is what it is, you know. Mm-hmm. But I feel like. You know, there might have been fire marshals that should have been possibly investigated in this situation, because from what I understand, there was a lot of different things that were overlooked there. The building passed fire inspection just weeks before. Yeah, but apparently they overlooked some things because I've been told people say there were doors that were op- that didn't open pro- properly or doors that were locked. And so I don't know. I mean, I'm throwing, a- throwing around accusations that I don't know all the information yeah, about, yeah. but it just kind of seemed like. The band manager and the owners, there should have been some more people investigated than they mm-hmm. were, as mm-hmm. far as I know. You know, I kind of feel bad that sponsors and radio stations got sued when they really didn't have anything to do with any of it. They just happened to have their names on it. But that's the American legal system. That's the it way made it everybody, everybody pay. Sued. Yeah, everybody gets sued in the end. Yeah. yeah. So how do you look at it now? Here we are <laughs> 18 years later. How have you changed? Well, I know not too long after that, I had been so focused on so many things and that night made me think I need to focus on life more. I'm like, I need to, I want to go see things. I want to travel. I want to focus on things like friends for like the next year or two. I did that a lot. I traveled a lot more than I had the rest of my life. I was just like, you know, I haven't seen things that I want to see. And so it was kind of a, you know, life is too short type of moment. So that definitely changed for me. And, and I think it just made me more focused on the things I want to do with my life and um, and not not waste any moments. That's definitely a life changing thing for me. And, uh, you know, and today I think I'm probably a safer person because of it. I'm definitely more cautious about things, maybe, you know, overly in some people's eyes. But uh, you have to kind of respect things like that. I heard a lot of stories about how definitely after the fire at the station, that people had something that they considered survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you believe exists? Is that something that you feel like you've experienced? Have you heard other people that were involved in experiencing this? Yeah, I 100% believe that it's true and that I have had it and maybe even still have it. I have always felt like so many times I have said to myself, why did I get out and someone else didn't? Like, Mm -hmm. why me? Mm-hmm. You know, what made me so more important than that person? Was I just lucky? Was I just in the right spot? 
yeah, you go through that. And that's really like, it's really like, especially when people start asking you about it and, you know, and you tell them, oh, you know, I tried to help a few people get out and they want to say things like, oh, you helped people. And it's like, no, it's, it's like, I was just doing what anybody should have been doing at that point because I wasn't stuck inside. For me, it's weird because I don't know who it was that saved me. Because like I said, somebody said, no, Tom, this way. And it was none of my friends that got out with me. Do you have a guardian angel or a... That's what a lot of people like to call it, a guardian angel, or was it my subconscious telling me to go the other way? And so I've kind of chalked it up to sort of a a spiritual moment, paranormal moment, something like that. I'm a big fan of paranormal things. You have a podcast about it, right? I do a paranormal podcast. So I've actually included... The station nightclub fire is one of my episodes uh-huh. and speculate on it being a, a, a guardian angel or a spirit or something. But for me, it's like if you if you could record the voice and play it for me, I would be able to recognize it. Like it was that clear to me that somebody stopped me and made me go the other way. And I'll Does never that happen to you any other time. Not that I can recall. No, no. Hmm. Uh, and then the other paranormal end of it, if you will, is how much bad luck Great White has been for me. Like I mentioned, that was the third time I tried to see them and something bad always happens (laughs) when I would go to their shows. So I've stopped trying to go to their shows. (laughs) You would never see them again, right? No, I don't. Just because I'm superstitious, not because I'm holding a grudge or anything. I still love their music, but yet I still feel strange if I hear their song come on the radio, you know, which you don't hear their music in New England anymore. I've been mad at them ever since. And I don't hold it against anyone who's mad at the band. Yeah. I'm not, but I was able to find closure. I was I'm able glad. to talk. To I'm glad. Russell, and I know some other people who have had, you know, grudges with the band, but they've able been able to talk to the to Jack Russell, and they've been able to, you know, to just let it go and have closure. But for a lot of people, they'll never have closure, and that's okay because that's what you need to to do it. Then that's fine. I mean, you know, so that band will never be able to play New England again. Ever. They played once in Maine, I think. Yeah. Over the last. I think yeah, I think that's the closest Maine and New Jersey. I think is the closest they've gotten to Rhode Island. Yeah. Since the fire, and it's I, you never hear their music on any radio stations locally any ever anymore. Mm-mm. Occasionally, I I might listen to satellite radio, and a great white song will pop up, and I'm yeah. like, oh. Yeah, Sometimes weird. I'll even be into the song until I realize, oh, wait a minute. Am, am right. I supposed to be enjoying this? Right. Because it's, right. it's a weird feeling now. It's like, right. do I, you know, I'm going to blame the music now, a song that has nothing to do with anything, you know? So it's such a weird dynamic, you know, that it, it, they, they were artists that produced something that was so beautiful to me. And now I can't ever enjoy it again. You seem very healthy about it. I think other people might be like me, like, fuck that band. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't think that's unhealthy either. I just think that, um, you know, I have my approach to it. And and believe me, I've gone through those moments of yeah. fuck the band or fuck those owners and yeah. and whatever. And I've just kind of, you know, my feelings about it just have, um, you know, developed over the years. Mm-hmm. Life is too short to be holding grudges against anybody. There's... The two stories, the band says they got permission and the venue says they didn't have permission. We're going to say that for the rest of time. Yeah, we'll never know. And because there was no court case, we'll never know. Do you wish there was a court case? Do you feel like that would have solidified some answers for all of you? 
I think it would have helped. I think because, you know, a lot of the things we know are hearsay. Um, a lot of things we know were just, you know, maybe came from opinion pieces or, yeah. um, you it's know, a lot of that reporting or whatever. Yeah. And so, I mean, I was there and I don't know the answers to most questions, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So, you know, I only know what I saw and I saw those sparklers and they didn't, they didn't throw me off. It seemed weird to have them because it was such a low ceiling. Those things wouldn't normally set something on fire, but because that soundproofing that the owners put on the building was so um, flammable that it just took any little spark to make it start up on fire. I mean, if somebody had flicked a cigarette at this at this soundproofing, it would have started a fire. That's just what it was. I mean, they just put the perfect situation next to the other perfect situation, and then it all went to hell. It was a catastrophe. You know? and yeah. And I mean, a lot of tragedies, that's what happens. It's just negligence on a few different people's parts. Sometimes it's not just one person. Sometimes it's a group of people. That manager went to jail. The van manager, yeah. Yeah. And he served some time. And then a lot of families supported his release from jail. Do you have any opinion about it? An early release from jail. Yeah, he got released early. At that point, I was just kind of like, you know... He did his time. He, you know, he did it well and he didn't get into any trouble. And so they let him out. You know, it was, it's like I say for all of them, I feel like he's a victim, too. I mean, he didn't know that that padding on the wall, the soundproofing had been was flammable. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of a patsy for everybody, don't you think? A little bit. A yeah, little bit. I mean, all he did way. was all he did was flip the switch, yeah. you know, and anybody yeah. could have done that. But, you know, I mean, you've you've worked in radio and you. You've been in rock clubs. You've seen this soundproof padding in probably 100, 200, 500 rooms in your yep. life. I have, too. I have yep. some on the walls around me right now. Yep. We don't know if it's flammable or not. You don't know how easily it would go up. And so I, I can't say that he should have known better. He was just trying to make the band look bigger than life in a small club and give people their money's worth. It was overkill that wasn't necessary, though. I think that's probably my big problem for it is, is the band would have been just as fun to watch without those special effects because they were cheesy at best really they were hacking their way across america by the time that they hit yeah. the station. yeah i mean they were you know it was the 2000s now and nobody really cared about great white anymore it wasn't even the original band anymore right. it was an overkill you don't really need those and if you're going to use them use them in the proper setting where there's a tall ceiling and you've got a big enough stage for it you know otherwise it just seemed like a silly thing to have to begin with yeah I, I agree with you. What would you like the takeaway to be from this? I mean, sometimes it feels like it just happened. Well, for me, I think just safety mostly, yeah. you know, whether it's whether you're a band manager or a band or a club owner or whatever, just take safety into account. Don't try to cheap, take a cheap way out. Yeah. You know, don't buy the cheapest foam and not know if it's flammable or not. You know, don't they were told that they were told it was safe. Mm -hmm. The neighbor sold it to him. There was a yeah, guy that lived across the street, sold it to him. Is that crazy? Here is the guy next door or something sold it to him. And and I don't know how much of that is true or not. And I don't know whether they even looked to see if it was flammable or not. You know, did they just take his word for it? There's so much of that. What ifs and, and who knows right. type right. questions that will never be answered. Right. But for me, it's safety. If you're going to be someone going to a show, take the time to know where all your exits are. Make sure you're in a safe place. You know, if, if you're one of those people who has to be front row in the middle of that mob, 
soon as you feel like you need to get out of there, get out of there. Right. You know, just be a little bit more observant and smart about the things around you. If you're a club owner, don't cheat the system. Don't slip a couple extra dollars to the fire marshal or something, the inspector or whatever. I'm not accusing them of doing that. I'm just saying that, you know, if a, if a door isn't supposed to be blocked, don't unblock it when they come by and then block it after they leave and things like that. Just don't don't take any shortcuts because you never know when something's going to happen and it's going to ruin so many lives. What's your world like now, Tom? These days, uh, mostly I work as a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. I'm in my 11th year as a comedian now working around New England. Like I mentioned earlier, I do a podcast that's called My Paranormal Story. I once for a short time uh, worked as a paranormal investigator, so I tell a lot of my personal experiences and stories on that podcast. That's interesting. It's a lot of fun, and it's, it's gotten a decent following now. All my life, I've had experiences, so every episode is just me telling one of those stories. What do you and attribute that paranormal activity in your life to? to can, you, can you pinpoint that? I think it happens to everyone. It's just that sometimes we don't notice it. Sometimes uh-huh. we dismiss it as something else. Yeah. Um, for me, I kind of was noticing it at a young age, but didn't even realize that it wasn't stuff that other people were experiencing. I grew up with friends, some were into witchcraft, some were into Ouija boards and other things. And I was just always, since I was a kid, curious about all of it. I just wanted to know more about what was going on. Eventually, in my 30s, I ended up living in a house that was haunted in Providence. And I had quite a few experiences there. So did my roommates. And that led me to really want to know more. So that's when I just started absorbing everything I could, every documentary, every book, every TV show. Eventually, with all that knowledge, I decided to become a a paranormal investigator and try and help people who were having situations. And I did that for like seven years. And I kind of got out of it. I started doing more and more comedy, so there wasn't as much time for the other things. And a couple of years ago, everybody started doing podcasts. And I was like, I'm going to do mine about paranormal because I'm always telling my stories. People are always on the edge of their seat listening to stories. So I said, "Uh, I'll just do a, every week I'll do a podcast episode of one of my stories and it'll be kind of like sitting by a fireplace and listening to me tell a spooky story. So it's almost like old timey radio. It's just me narrating a story, except that it's one that is from my own personal experiences. That's very cool. Um, And then the station nightclub fire is one of those. Now I'm focused on the comedy. I got my own business where I book fundraisers for comedy shows. It's called Funny for Funds. And uh, I have my own franchise for that here in Mass. Every February, I end up doing interviews like this about yeah. the fire. Yeah. So I can always count on that. And then I'm, Halloween, I'm just I can really, count on interviews for Paranormal. <laughs> I'm just really sorry that that happened to you. You know, well, that, well, I'm really you. sorry that that happened. It changed the trajectory of a lot of people's lives. Obviously, some people lost their lives but those families that are dealing with it directly and but people like you people like yourself where you you carry that around despite the fact that years go by and it's it gets a little quieter in your mind it's still there yeah it's always there every february i start to feel it yeah. you know i don't even think about it and all of a sudden i'm like why am i just so glum this oh it's the 17th or a few days away yeah. and that's that's how i always know it's coming up mm-hmm. But yeah, it'll always be in me as in appreciate life because you were two steps away from losing it. Well, I appreciate you talking to me, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me on. I love your podcast. It's really good. Keep doing it. Well, it's an incredible story. And it's one that has bothered me all along, you know, as a New Englander, as, as a rock and roll fan. 
I just hope it never, ever, ever happens again. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. You know, it's evident to me by speaking to people who were more connected than I to the Station Nightclub fire that a lot of it's still unclear. There's been 18 years worth of conjecture and rumor and speculation. The Station Nightclub fire will forever be an emotionally charged topic. I appreciate Tom for coming on the show and talking about his experiences as a survivor. I will never know what it is like to survive a deadly fire. At least I hope I never know. And I'm really grateful that he agreed to join me today. I have our mutual friend Brian Mulhern, another radio guy to thank for the introduction to Tom. He is a stand-up comedian and you can see him all over New England. His podcast is My Paranormal Story online, myparanormalstory.net. On the next episode, I speak to my friend John Laurenti, who worked for WHGY, the big rock station out of Providence. We had a very long talk about radio, the station, his friend, the doctor. That's next week. You can visit the station Memorial Park, which was built on the site of the fire in West Warwick, Rhode Island. It's a one-acre park. It's beautiful. It includes a courtyard, gardens, granite monuments with the names and birthdays of every person who died in the fire. They did a nice job with it. The markers for everyone are wedges, like individual monitors that you see on stage in front of singers and players so they can hear themselves or hopefully hear themselves. It's pretty cool. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the show so you can get it when it lands. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's very helpful. And you can listen to Crime of the Truest Kind wherever you listen to podcasts and online. Crimeofthetruestkind.com Follow the show on Facebook and Instagram, Crime of the Truest Kind. On Twitter, at Truest Kinds. And on TikTok, at Truest Kind. I always laugh when I say TikTok because I'm not 12. But it is kind of fun. Merch store is on the way. Designs have been submitted. Patreon is coming. And there is a Buy Me a Coffee. If you go to crimeofthetruestkind.com, you will see the icon at the top of the page. Thanks very much, Tom B. and Sandy, my VIPs. You're the best. All right, until next time, lock your goddamn doors. Goddamn doors.